Hello everyone, my name is Michael Hickens, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Record now so I don't forget, because that has happened to me. Okay. So we're recording. All right. How's it going, man? It's going great. Really good. Good. Excellent. All right. So let's do this thing. All right. Let's do it. All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of But I Digress. And today I am finally with Len Kuntz, um, a writer from Washington State who is the author of five books, most recently an essay, uh, a collection of personal essays called This Is Me Being Brave, which uh, is out now from Everytime Press. And I will have the link in the, com in the uh, description of this podcast. Um, I know Len won't want me to say this because he'll think it sounds braggy, and I'm using air quotes, um, but he's written more than 1,200 stories um, and five novels, and then, of course, this is me being brave. Um, you can find more of his writing at http lenkunz.blogspot.com. I butchered that, but it will also be in the description of the podcast and um so thanks very much for doing this i really appreciate it yeah it's so great to be here thank you absolutely and i i, I say uh finally because we we had some technical contretemps last time we tried to do this so uh here we are um and it's really exciting now i want to jump right in um to the first area of digression <laughs> uh so in one of your uh one of your essays um you recount telling your father when you were about nine years old that you wanted to be a writer. Um, and he said something to the effect of, quit your fucking dreaming. How are you gonna live like that? Um, how did you get past that to actually become a writer? I mean, I assume that from your essay, your, your father loomed large in your childhood. And so like, how did you get past that, you know, block? Yeah, well, that was um, kind of a seminal moment and a scary moment as well, because um, I knew I always wanted to be a writer. And my dad was a mechanic. Um, um, my stepfather, who raised me when I was five, and my real dad was a mechanic as well. My brothers were all very good with their hands and could, you know, fix things and whatnot. And I was kind of like the black sheep of the family, because <laughs> I read poetry and uh, had long hair and wore puka shells and, you know, uh, and so it was really offensive at first. It, it kind of hurt. And then I thought about it and I thought he, he meant that in the best way, actually. He thought, how are you going to live on like writing the scribbles in your head? And, uh, but I always wanted to write. And so I just kind of like put it off and, you know, got it, different jobs and whatnot. And then uh, I returned to that, like, after I retired, you know, from the corporate world and started writing and doing what I wanted to do. When I was All right, young. let me stop you right there, because <laughs> no one can see you. You're a young man. Um, you retired from yeah. the corporate world. Yeah. That is a, 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 a bold thing. But, but, but um, before we, we get to that, which, which I really want to get to, because I mean, the whole point of this um, of this podcast is around like how writers, you know, make a living, right? Um, and and how, how, how we do sort of cobble it together. Um, and you're the first person to have retired. I, actually, that's not true. Uh, Vince Passaro is retired um, from the corporate world, but he's also, um, you know, uh, of retirement age. <laughs> um, uh, and entering the full flower of his adulthood now. Uh, but no, I wanted to ask you, what gave your father the impression that you couldn't make a living as a writer? In other words, did you say to him, I mean, did you say to him, I want to, I want to be a poet or, or, cause like, you know, I guess everyone knows that poets don't make money, but like, how would he know that writers don't make money? What examples did you, and what on earth got into your head to want to be a writer? Like, what, what was around you? What was the context that was like, I'm going to be a writer? Well, those, that's a lot of questions, right? Um, let me see. First okay, off, our first digressions. Yeah. <laughs> um, my father, you know, he didn't read. 
he didn't read. So to him, books were like nothing. And the weird thing is back in like, when I was younger, like the seventies, you could actually make a living writing. I mean, people would pay you like Playboy magazine would play you three thousand dollars to write a story. There was fiction and Esquire. Ten thousand dollars. Yeah, and there was ten thousand. There was fiction and Mademoiselle, and all these magazines had fiction. They don't today. Today you lose money writing, but back then you could actually make a living. I think, and that's why I always kind of regret, you know, not just blowing that off and doing it anyway. Um, but uh, I'm trying to remember what was the other question. Um, so your dad, I, what impressions did he have of writing that gave him the idea that you couldn't make a living? And where the hell did you get the idea that you wanted to be a writer in the first place? Well, um, okay. So I, I don't think my dad read, and I don't think he thought you could make a living from that because when he grew up, you made a living with your hands and, and fixing things and, you know, machinery and, and agriculture and mechanics and whatnot. Um, and the reason I started writing, well, I had this teacher, you know, um, when I was in fourth grade and she would give us these assignments for English, you know, here's five different things you can write about. And I would write all five. You're supposed to pick one, right? You know, write one of these uh, ideas mm -hmm. here. And I would write all five. And at the end of the year, uh, she pulled me aside and she goes, have you ever thought about being a writer when you grow up? And I thought, I thought she was joking, right? You know, I thought she's punking me or Ashton Kutcher or whatever. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I thought, you know, I think she actually meant that. She thought I could be a writer. And she was one of the first people who kind of like believed in me, so to speak. And um, and so I would, I would write, you know, when I was younger, as a lot of kids do. But for me, it's become this kind of cathartic way of escaping these demons that I still hold on to all, all these years later. Um, because uh, I've talked about this before and I don't want to repeat myself too much here because I love the questions that you ask, but um, I would write all these things about my childhood or my feelings or whatnot. And I would cloak them in fiction. You know, you change a couple details and you can say it's fiction, but it's really true. <laughs> uh, and people would go, wow, that's really dark. And wow, that's messed up. You know, how did you think of that? Um, but it would really be true. Like one of the first pieces of Flash that I wrote maybe like uh, 12 years ago when I first started, um, the first line was, mother teaches us how to steal. And it was uh, summer scalping scarecrows. And I got interviewed for that story and it became a story of mine that had some acclaim, you know, early on. And the, the woman who was interviewing me goes, now, how did you come up with that idea for that story? And I said, well, it was true. She goes, no, no, she goes, no, no, seriously. How did you come up with that notion for the story? I go, well, it's all true. I changed two things in the thing, but it's all true. And she still didn't believe me at the end of it. And the story, the idea about the story was when we were kids, we, uh, I grew up really poor right? I mean, really poor. We had 10 kids in our family. We lived in a trailer home, kind of a makeshift trailer home with a couple add-ons. And we would pick fruit. And we were the only white kids. It was all migrants other than my family there. And we would pick, um, you know, strawberries in June, raspberries in July, pie cherries in August. And one summer we digressed and we were working in this cornfield. And uh, at, at night, my mom would drive the Woody station wagon, 70s thing, into the cornfield. And my brother and I would pick corn and load up the back. And we would do that, you know, a couple times a week. And then I realized at one point we were stealing <laughs> the corn from the guy we were working from for during the day. We were stealing his corn at night, <laughs> which is so fucked up, right? I told you I had a fucked up childhood, right? Um, no, but um, you know, um, welcome uh, to the uh, welcome to the world, right? Um, um, I I have yet to meet anybody who well, that's not true, but most people 
have had some form of fucked up childhood, although getting, you know, being chauffeured by your mom on, on criminal jaunts is, you know, not, not commonplace. Um, uh, so you, 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 you were, you know, a, a farm laborer as a kid, right? And then you've, you, you've had a, a whole range of jobs, like from selling fences to selling clothes at Nordstrom. Um, and I mean, it's not like, um, I mean, you know, most writers who do choose, so, I mean, there are the writers who don't, who don't get the corporate job at all. Right. Um, and they choose like the, you know, modern day equivalent of the cold water garret to the extent that that's still you know possible in our society. Um, but you, you know, most people that are writers kind of find niches in the corporate world, even if it's like super low level. Uh, it's just it speaks to their comfort zone, right? They're not. They're usually not people who are used to working with their hands, and so you know, even if you're like the messenger kid or guy uh, in in the you know law office, I, I don't think that job exists anymore because everything is electronic now. But like when I was a young guy, um, I had a job um, in the mailroom, right? And you would get these carts um, full of internal memos. Uh, and and you would walk around the hallways of this you know giant law firm, delivering packets of uh, internal memos to the different attorneys. That, that was a job. It didn't pay very well, uh, but it, it was a job. You know, you've had different kind of jobs, very different kind of jobs. That I think it, so. Is was, was that a conscious decision? Was that just like okay, you know, you're supposed to work with your hands or sell stuff or what? How, how did you come to those jobs, I guess, is the question. Well, I, was, I grew up poor, right? So um, you always had to have a job and you just yeah. got the job you could have. Uh, and when I was a junior, almost a senior in high school, my parents wanted me to go in the army because my brothers did that. That's what you did when you were poor. And uh, I mean, look at me, I'm not, I'm skinny, I'm a scarecrow. I'm not fit for the army, but all my brothers went into the army and, um, and I finally one night saw a recruiter. He came to the house. He had that, you know, shorn haircut and he had even had the kind of olive green garb on and I'm talking to this guy and he's scaring the hell out of me. And finally I just jumped up from the seat and it was a rare day where I defied my parents. And I said, I am not going in the army. I, I can't go in the army. And they go, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go to college. And they go, what? And my dad goes, what? You're going to go to college? I know this sounds twisted, but um, my dad ran like a auto shop and he would see all these college graduates come in and ask, you know, you have a job I can do? He goes, you're just going to go to college and waste all that money and you're not going to be able to get a job. And I go, I'm going to college. And so I did. And um, I'd seen this movie called The Paper Chase, which is about this kid who goes to Harvard Law School during the 70s. And uh, it, there's a whole story about that I could tell, but it's kind of long. But anyway, it was very it impressed me and I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I went to law school thinking I had to have, you know, a real job, which would be a lawyer versus right. being. So you you went to college and did pre law. Well, I, I well, you went to you went to law you you went to law school. No, I went to college and graduated poli sci, and okay. then after that, um, I got a clerk a job clerking for a law firm in Seattle uh, with my best friend, who is now a lawyer, and we clerked at the sleazy law firm in Seattle, and. My job was to write these letters. It was subrogation law, which is like if a builder takes out a loan and he sort of defaults on it, we would sue them. And we would like take their house, take their car, guarantee their wages, you know. And it was like, I go, oh my God, I thought law was romantic, truth and justice or whatnot. And so I threw that idea away and I, you know, I'm not going to be a lawyer now. I just spent all this money of my own 
uh, college and and then I got married when I was 23 I moved to Portland and um, I couldn't get a job <laughs> you know I couldn't get a job because the unemployment rate in Portland at that time was 10.2 percent and I you know finally got a job at Nordstrom which was the darling of the corporate world at the time their stock split three yep. times in two years and um you know, I did that for 24 years. Anyway, I'm digressing, I'm babbling. Well, no, that's great. So wait, so um, so you worked at Nordstrom for 24 years. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you had other jobs as well, you know, uh, from what I can tell. I did, um, yeah. Every summer I had to have a job. I mean, we started picking fruit. I started picking fruit when I was nine years old. And it wasn't just lackadaisical picking it was like you know hurried picking because you you got paid cash at the end of the day and my parents had no money for us so if you wanted like a new shirt or like school supplies or anything other than food you had to come up with the money for it so like strawberries people pick strawberries you pick but they put rocks in the middle of the row so that weeds don't grow and so most people who pick strawberries or back then when I was nine years old, they sit on their ass and they kind of scoop and they pick a couple and they eat a couple. But for me, I was getting paid $1.25 a flat, which is a box of strawberries. And I was on my knees, you know, and I was picking those things like this, you know, and I'd get paid like $20, which was a fortune right. I mean, for a poor kid at nine years old. And so every summer, you know, I had all kinds of weird jobs, you know. Um, what was the weirdest? Uh, I think, okay, I had a job when I was uh, a junior in college lined up, which was a fishing boat where you're supposed to make all this money. I've heard all these stories about you go to Alaska, you make all this money. Yep. And that fell through. And then it's like one day before college is at, and I don't have a job. So if I don't have a job, I can't pay for my senior year. And one of my friends in college goes, well, if you want a job, if you want to come to Denver, my stepfather will get you a job. And I go, okay, <laughs> you know, why not? So I go from Spokane, Washington. I, the next day I get in my car and I drive to Denver, Colorado, and his father was the second richest man in Colorado, uh, Charlie Goldberg, and he had all these different companies, and he gets me a job working on a fence company, and it's me, everyone there is a person of color, the foreman is a Native American who like hunts with a bow and arrow, and all the other guys were Hispanic. And there was me, this skinny white guy. And we were make we would put up fences all over Colorado. And I'm not mechanical, right? So I'm like just kind of like handing stuff to these guys who are doing all the work. But after we were done setting up these fences in Loveland and Aurora and all over Colorado, we would go out and we would drink and we would drink tequila. <laughs> and I could drink a lot because I've always drank way too much of my life. And they love me. They call me El Flacco, which means the skinny one. Uh-huh. Um, and, oh, El Flacco, here you go. And I would just drink with them. And uh, it was a strange summer. Yeah, strange summer. And I was a poor kid, but I, you know, I'm living in this family that is so uh, privileged. We would use that word today. Back then, you'd say blessed. But, I mean... We went to dinner at this, it was a house and they served French food and there were no prices on the menu. It's the only time in my life where I've ever gone to a restaurant where there are no prices. So it's like, if you have to ask, you shouldn't be here. Uh, I saw Muhammad Ali fight Lao Zedo. We were front row. We went to a chorus line I'm at this theater. I'm in the front row. This is a poor kid who's never done anything in his life. It was enchanted. That was when you were in Colorado. 
Yeah, exactly. Now you've so then you so you basically you got married, you moved to uh, Portland, right? Um, you worked at Nordstrom's and then you retired. But like you're in your forties, I'm guessing by looking at you. Am, am I wrong? Yeah, you're wrong. But I retired when I was forty six. And the thing is, I, you know, there's a saying: when you grow up poor, you're always poor. And so, my wife and I got married. Well, I'll tell you about when we got married. So we'd been saving dimes and we had this oblong, huge jar and we would put dimes in it. We called them the honeymoon dimes. We said, when we get married, this is why we're recording, uh, we'll use these dimes to pay for our honeymoon, right? And so <laughs> turns out you need a lot more dimes than that. So we got married and, uh, we went to Vancouver, Colorado, or Canada for our uh, honeymoon. And for some reason, we had no credit card, right? We didn't have a credit card back then. And so she went up one side of the road in Vancouver, Canada. I went up the other side of the road trying to find the cheapest hotel. <laughs> and so we find the cheapest hotel and we stayed there and we ran out of money after three days. And so... Uh, we just left and we came back and we stayed in her parents' camper for the rest of our honeymoon, right? And so, um, so we're 23, we're married, we had one car, we ate hamburger helper. Back then they had this thing called, it, it was beer, it just said beer. There was no, it wasn't Budweiser, it wasn't anything, it just said beer. And it was kind of a thing back then, and like hamburger, like, meat like fish sure. <laughs> generic and so when i got hired at nordstrom and she did too um we were still poor in our minds right and so we would just save our money because when you're poor you don't spend your money you say if you have extra money you save it and so along the way i got all these amazing jobs with nordstrom amazing company who just gave me all these opportunities and I was making a lot of money. In my mind, it was ex exorbitant, right? And so I didn't spend it. I would just we would save it, save it, save it, save it. And then finally, I got to the point when I was 46, where it was like, I don't need any more money. <laughs> I mean, I'm lucky. I am so lucky. It was confounding being poor, but you realize at some point, I don't need any more money. So I could write, you know, and I'm the luckiest fucker on the planet because all writers I know are like scrimping and saving to go to AWP or maybe I can afford this conference or, you know, maybe I have it like half an hour I can write in the morning before I go to my job. Well, me, you know, I retired when I was 46 and I just wrote every day, which is what I do every day. And it was because I grew up poor, not knowing that you can spend the money you make, I just pocketed it and saved it, you know, and I got lucky. Well, does that make sense? Yeah, ex except it doesn't sound lucky to me. It sounds, I mean, it doesn't sound like you got lucky. It sounds like you, um, you worked really hard, <laughs> is what it sounds like. Were you able to, did, did you write? while you were working yeah i did i yeah i did it was really bad writing you know um i i wrote yeah i definitely wrote i wrote and i was i've read the stuff i've written back then and it was you know really not very good but when i started to write for uh, seriously after i retired i really i went back and i studied 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 the craft I mean, can you see all the books back here? I can. Our, our, our listeners can't. But yeah, I was going to remark on that bookshelf. of that is No, I have, I have bookshelves all over my house. I literally have almost a library in my house. But on one of those shelves back there, there are probably 100 craft books. And I read all of those. And then I underlined them and studied them and... And then I studied other writers, you know, uh, online. I didn't know there was online writing back then. You know, it was kind of like in its birth, 
when I started writing, you know, there are maybe like five or maybe 20 online magazines, LMA and some of those, but I would study certain writers there and I'm going, oh my God, you can write a story in like 200 words? What the hell? Uh, I was mesmerized. It was like finding your soulmate almost. Uh -huh. So I studied and studied and studied. And then I said, I'm going to be a writer. And I did it. You know, I started submitting, kind of fondling around and bumping up against stuff and whatnot. But um, it's a lot easier to do today than back then. But I think the fact that it was harder back then made me uh, be a better writer. Now, um, you, you don't have an agent. Um, and you actually, I, I think I read either in a blog post or something that you said in an interview that for the most part, you've given up submitting um, and you're publishing on your blog. I guess what what's your what's your strategy as a writer in terms of finding an audience, being published, all that stuff? Yeah, it's it's changed, you know, over the years. Um, I mean, earlier I still love being published. Of course, it's great, right? Um, whatever it is, in print or whatnot. But um, so I, you know, the imposter complex. You know that sure. Um, Okay, I have big time. I have that. Um, so when I first started writing, you know, my whole idea was to get 20 stories published so I could tell an agent I've got 20 stories published, you know, represent me so I can get my novel published, right? Uh, I did that and then I got addicted to getting published. And I'm writing full time, right? And I am very lucky. I write really fast, I don't rewrite. So I, so like every day I would write 20 stories or poems, 20 every day. So I'd have a lot of material and I was like workmanlike. I would write 20 stories or poems and or, and submit them immediately. And so consequently I would get published a lot, you know, once I figured out how to do it. Um, and so I came up with this goal to get a thousand pieces published. I thought some grandiose, you know, goal, do it. Cause I'm a, I need numbers to keep me accountable. And like four years ago, I had my 1000 piece published and it was like euphoria. I felt so amazed and kind of proud of myself. And then like two days later, it's like, I was so depressed. <laughs> This, I'm, I suffer from depression too. And I thought, what the, what, what are you doing? You fucking dick. Who cares about a thousand pieces? Who's reading that? I mean, why would you even want to do that? You're so arrogant and, you know, degrading myself. And I was really depressed. And, uh, and I fell into this funk where I thought, you know, what does it matter? Really? What does it matter? And I have my blog, which I don't, I can see the countries where people read it, but I don't really know who reads it. Sure. But it, it like a few months ago, it went over like 2.5 million views. So somebody's reading it right every day. Um, so I post every Monday, Wednesday, Friday on my blog, and it could be a poem. It could be a story. It could be like just a rant or quotes from other people that I like or songs that I've seen that are, or a poet slam. Um, and so I post there and I think, you know, if I want to have a voice, I have that. I'm lucky to have that. Um, but anymore, I, unless someone queries me and says, you know, send, can you send me something? I really don't submit anymore. And I'm not bragging about that. It's kind of like a crime, I think, of myself to where I kind of lost that motivation to submit. Um, you should submit. Otherwise, it just dies in your computer, right? <laughs> you know, right. I, 
I literally have thousands and thousands and thousands of things I've written that are just dying in my computer, but um, it's a failing of mine, I think. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure why. I can't answer that question. Well, I mean, nothing's permanent either, right? Right, right. Um, I, I mean, you know, and I can understand sort of your reaction your, 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 your twofold reaction, right? The pride and then the sort of disillusionment. But, you know, just thinking like 1200 stories, that's like a story a day for three or four years. Like, that, like I can't even find the time to submit every day. <laughs> how, so how do you divide your time? That's, I, I think that, for somebody, like, obviously very few people are in your position, but there are some, right, who, uh, whether it's because they've retired uh, at, you know, retirement age or uh, they've, they've gotten lucky in some way or whatever, but like, if you had the luxury of, you know, like I asked, you know, if I had the luxury of writing all day, every day, how would I organize my time? How do you organize your time in terms of, obviously you don't submit anymore when you were submitting. Yeah. How did you organize your time? Yeah, the weird thing is, you know, so I've always wanted to write. Everyone wants to write. Everyone who wants to be a writer, their fantasy is to have a whole day to write, right? So, like, the first year or so, I had every day to write, like, 24 hours. And I would do everything I could not to write. <laughs> I would, like, clean my office. I would, you know, do all the stupid stuff. And then finally, you know, I realized the romanticism of writing is what all writers think about, right? The romantic writing, you know, Truman Capote at the parties and you got an agent and it's, it's, a, it's not romantic. And so I approach it with a real, like, it's a job. And so I come up here at nine o'clock before that, I'd do stuff, you know, check my email. And at nine o'clock, I would start writing and I would write and I would write and I would write till five o'clock. And so, uh, you know, everyone writes differently. I write really fast. So I would just generate a ton of stuff, you know. Um, but anyway, I think a little bit of it is like, I, when I was studying the craft, I took this course from Megan Chance, who uh, is an author. And she said that uh, writer's block is bullshit. <laughs> and I thought, wow, <laughs> really? And she goes, yeah, it's bullshit. Um, you got to sit your ass in the chair and you got to write. And you got to start writing scribbles or gibberish or whatever until something pops. And that, for me anyway, was an epiphany. And so I did, because you know, I'd come up here at nine o'clock with no intention, no idea about a story, but I would just start tapping on the keyboard and eventually something would come of it. Yeah, so when I was like studying the craft early on, I read On Writing by Stephen King. Uh-huh. You know, and- Another fairly well-known writer. It's a, it's actually one of the best craft books. You know, Stephen King, you have your thoughts about him, but, and he says every day he sits down and writes 3,000 words. And he reads 100 books a year, <laughs> every year. If you want to be a writer, read 100 books a year. You have to write 3,000 words a day. And, uh, to me, that was like mind boggling, right? You know, like a hundred books a year and 3000 words, but I took it to heart. And uh, so I started doing that, you know, like the romantic bloom was not there, but I tried to read a hundred books every year. And I, I hit it every other year probably. Um, but it's like being a writer is like being an athlete. It's like, it's not all the like heebie-jeebie, you know. Yeah, sometimes I'll 
like I'll be in the bathtub, I'll write this amazing poem. I think it's amazing anyway to me. But uh, most of the time it's like, I'm pumping out stuff like I'm like lifting weights, right? You know, I'm reading a hundred books a year. Um, I'm like writing 3000 words. I'm not going, oh, do I love this word so much? You know, like I'm gonna go date it, you know? Uh, so writing, is beautiful and it's the most amazing thing in the world it's the most precious thing in the world to me but we romanticize writing way too much in my mind um if if you if you just work at it without the romanticism you produce romance is kind of how i see it if that makes sense it's 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 actually super well put uh, i i I wonder though, if we didn't romanticize it, would, would you have become a writer? We, we, we do have these fantasies about what it's like, like you said, the Truman Capote at the party, the agent, isn't that sort of the carrot at the very beginning? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's funny listening to you talk about your experiences because, so I live on a lake and my in-laws live next door and my father-in-law is quite the character but he would just barge in sometimes he go what are you doing i go i'm writing he go oh so you're not doing anything and i go well <laughs> i'm writing no come here you know like like writing to him wasn't like anything you know like you're not in his mind creating anything um so that just made me think of that. But, you know, um, I think, you know, people write for every kind of reason, right? So I was teaching this one course for bending genres. Uh, it's an online magazine, fantastic, if you haven't seen it. And uh, this one story came through and it was, it was really just too long and too, like, lathering and it wasn't very good and I was troubled by it you know because I have to like respond right and you want to respond in a way that you don't hurt someone uh, and I went to my wife uh, I call her Mike and I said so Mike you know this story um, I don't know what to do with it I want to tell her to do this and this and she goes to me she goes, you know, people, everyone writes for a different reason. They don't write for your reason. You know, maybe she just wants to write this piece and she doesn't want to be Truman Capote. She doesn't want to be Blancoon. She doesn't want to be whoever. And to me, that was an epiphany. I thought, she's absolutely right. Um, you know, and so... I approached my feedback hearing from her in a different way than I would have, you know, because she was obviously just starting to write, you know, she, she's probably not going to be Stephen King, you know, whatever. And uh, so the point is, I think everyone writes for different reasons. You know, for me, it was kind of because I loved the idea of being a writer at first, and then it became a way to shake my demons. And then it became a way to just uh, grow, if that makes sense. Now, was, was um, not having kids a conscious choice? And did it have to do with the writing or was it? I assume you don't have kids. I, do. I have two, yeah. You have two, two kids. Two amazing children, yeah. Okay, now you've completely blown my mind. Well, I'll tell you a story. I've, I've told a few people this, but never online before. But so when I worked at Nordstrom, uh, again, remember, once you're poor, you're always poor. So I was not poor, but in my mind, I was poor. Sure. I had this amazing job where my job was to speak basically motivationally to different groups. And so I had... Uh, this rhythm to where I had to go host this meeting not just host it but pretty much put it on I mean every detail was me 
So I would do Seattle, I would go to Oregon, I would go to Colorado, I would go to Alaska. One, two, three, four. You're traveling, right? I'm doing these meetings, which are two hours long. There are three to 400 people in the room. I'm the guy, right, doing it. I do the meeting for two hours. I go afterwards, I meet with the store managers. We have our discussion. I walk the floor. I get on an airplane. I get to the hotel. I get up. I do the same thing. Get up, do the same thing. Get up, do the same thing. But I was robotic almost. Um, and so there's one point where, and this is a long time ago, right? But um, so I get up and I'm, you know, it's, my third meeting, I think, in Portland. Yeah. And for some reason, we're doing the meeting in Vancouver, Washington, instead of Portland. Um, and I get up, I called the hotel person and said, I need my car in 10 minutes, which is robotic and rhythmic and whatnot. And I get down there and uh, I go, my, where's my car? Where's my car? I need my car. I have a meeting I have to give. And finally, the car shows up. I get in the car. I'm flooring it because I'm almost late. And I look in the back seat, and there's like these kind of foamy boards, suitcased or uh, seat belted to the back. I go, "What the hell are those?" And I go, "Oh my God, this is not my car." <laughs> and so I had to turn around. But that's the mindset I was in. You know, I was like, I got in the wrong car. But I felt so privileged and lucky to have these jobs that I just, I overworked. I overdid it. It was crazy. And then we had two kids. Uh, amazing. I wish we had had, like, I love children. I wish we had 12. But I was working so much, I wasn't present as much as I could have been, you know? And so in my, my latest essay collection, I talk about this idea about, um, being present in the moment and whatnot. So when I was working at Nordstrom, I had all these amazing jobs. So suddenly I have a lot of money. I'm so lucky, right? So I wasn't around my kids a lot because I was doing all these jobs and whatnot. And so my daughter, Madison, she loves uh, music. So like I took her to Britney Spears, we had the front row. I took her to the Grammys, <laughs> you know, we were at the Grammys when Beyonce and Prince were there. Um, and then when I left Nordstrom, I'm living on a lake in this boondocky place. And I would take my son, Bailey, who's amazing, uh, to the bus stop. And we would just sit there in the car waiting for the bus to come. And we would have these discussions about nothing and everything. And I keep going, Dad, look at that tree. Doesn't that look like an arm or like question mark? And I go, oh my God, you know, you're right. <laughs> it does. And I realized, you know, it's just about, it's not about money. It's not about the grandiose kind of experience. It's about being present. So, you mentioned earlier that when you were reading all those craft books, you did a lot of underlining. So I guess my question is, um, is that like, a, do you do that with fiction too? Do you do that with poetry? Do you underline? Uh, do you dog ear? Or, 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 or do you kind of have some books that are sort of, you know, objects of veneration or, you know, you just... You know, you like I, there are books where I, I I read where I try not to crack the binding while I'm reading it because I just want to keep it, you know, pristine, which is you know my own form of neurosis. Yeah, that spectrum. I was that way in the beginning where I like to me books are precious, right? Um, and I would like not try to like bend the binding or whatnot, like you're saying. And then, you know, when I became I guess I feel like I'm a real writer. Maybe I'm not, but um, oh, you're a writer. Uh, I, I, you can tell how much I love a book by how like it's kind of like poofed out because right. I'm 
I've dog-eared like all the pages and I highlight. And um, to me, what I'm doing when I do that, even though the writer doesn't know it, I'm saying, I love you. I love your writing. You are amazing. Your, your talent is taking me to this place where I want to write like you. And so, oh yeah, I, I mark them up, I dog ear them. Um, and I've said this before, but like when I'm writing, reading something really amazing, I'll, I always dog ear it, I underline it, and then I'll stop and I'll just write because something they said, some emotion was so evocative or some word or some phrase or a play on the language, I'll go, oh my God, what the hell? That's genius. And I'll stop and I'll do my own turn on that. But yeah, I mean, all my books, you can walk through this house and you can tell the books I love the most because um, they're kind of almost like they've been left out in the sun and swollen up a little bit. So you, by the way, you so you, you mentioned, your, so your dad had no no clue about what writing was about. Um, apparently your father-in-law either. As your career has developed, um, how has your family's relationship, like not just um, those those people, but like in general, your wife, your kids, other other people in your family, how how supportive have they been or how um, not supportive have they been in terms of so, you know your writing career and your decision to retire at 46 and all of that well my wife is amazing she's been uh, incredible about my writing the 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 thing about my writing um uh, is other than this is me being brave which is a really straightforward essays kind of like you know there's not a lot of dancing and music in the writing everyone loves that book <laughs> everyone loves this book and i'm thinking okay why do you love this book i have all these other books where the 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 fiction and the music and the whatever is so amazing you don't love those books <laughs> but you have to be a writer or an artist to appreciate you know, there's all kinds of writing, but so my latest book is really straightforward and it's probably the most, not, not probably, it's easily the most well-received book I've written. But for me, I've had to learn to embrace the fact that it's, it's just kind of basic. I mean, like my brother-in-law, who's my best friend who lives in Canada, he sent me a note yesterday saying about like, how great the book is and whatnot. I'm thinking, but what about those other short story books I had where, where I was like twisting all this dark stuff into space and doing all these fancy things? Um, but no, they've all been in their own way. It, it, it really depends on how you look at art, right? Doesn't it? I mean, if you appreciate art, and I'm saying art, meaning painting, meaning film, meaning writing, meaning singing, meaning art, the things you and I love, right? It depends on how you view that, which is how you're gonna support someone. If they're a painter, if they're a singer, if they're whatever, if you love art, which I do, and I know you do, um, that's how you're going to support them. And it's not a fault of anyone I know, like my father-in-law or someone. They just don't love art the same way you and I do, right? So they're not going to go, oh my God, let me see this book. And I love the sentence. Like you and I probably, like I, I, I will go, I love this sentence. I right. wish I would have written this sentence. So I have a family who is amazing. My wife's family adopted. 
um, who is amazingly supportive, but they don't see art the same way. So now, you know, there's a question I always ask um, at the end or everybody that um, does this podcast with me. Um, and uh, I'm really curious to know what, what you'll say. What if you hadn't been able to be a writer, if being a writer wasn't something you had wanted, what would what would have been your dream vocation? Um, definitely to be a teacher, I think. Um, have you ever seen uh, Mr. Holland's opus? Yes. Okay. It's way too long. Should have been cut down, but uh, there's that scene where if you remember the movie, so the, the funding for schools gets cut and he's, I th think he's an art teacher or something. And so he's out of a job, right? And he's packing up his boxes from his desk after like so many years. And by the way, he was always trying to write an opus, Mr. Holland's opus. He was gonna write this grandiose piece that was gonna make him famous, which is what we all want, right? And uh, he doesn't do that. He gets a job teaching and he's like, oh, I fucking hate teaching, but I have to do it because I, you know, I gotta write, you know, kind of like writers, right? You know, I, you know, he's a musician in this, in this instance, but, um, and so he's packing up his bags and then he's going down the hall and all of a sudden he hears this, raucous noise he goes what's that what is that you know oh, it's nothing what is no there's something he walks into the gym and um it's flooded with all of his students that he's taught through the 30 years and uh getting a little emotional talking about this but um and someone who's I think like the mayor or governor, it's like Mary Steve, um, says, you know, you always talked about writing this opus and we are your opus, right? And look at us, it's like, oh my God. So I thought, yeah, I wanna be a teacher. That's that's great. Well, uh, Len, it's, it's, been, it's been a real pleasure. Um, you, I, I was really looking forward to this and, uh, and it lived up to it. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm Michael Hickens, and you've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. If you want to know more about me, please visit my website at www.michaelmissing.com.